Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Only the primary concern I have as we come to this text this morning is the possibility that we won't actually hear it. By which I do not mean we won't think about it seriously or that we won't examine it as thoroughly as we can or that we won't work our way through the argument it contains, at least as I see it. We'll certainly try to do all of that. But I'm less certain that we'll actually hear it in the end. We have been at Christ the King now for some months working our way through Hebrews. We come to what is universally agreed upon as one of the difficult passages of the scriptures. I wish to begin by saying this text is a warning. It was a warning. It was designed, it was meant to jolt the original hearers of Hebrews, and I believe it's a warning that's meant to jolt us as the Spirit of God uses His Word in our lives today. The pastor issues this warning to bring about his hearers' continuing faith, to spur their perseverance, to urge an examination of their spiritual state that they indeed might go on to maturity, as we talked all about last week if you were here, because they had regressed spiritually. Remember, the, the recipients of this written sermon. We explained last week, if you were here at length, how the pastor knows that what his hearers need to hold fast to their confession is the solid food concerning Jesus Christ as their great high priest. Which, of course, is why the pastor makes Christ as high priest the central subject of this large central section of the sermon. That's where we are in Hebrews. We're in the section that began in chapter 4, verse 14, and already by verse 16 of chapter 4, the pastor is urging them to appropriate this in their lives. Verse 16 of Hebrews 4, Let us then, because Jesus is our high priest, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I mean, this is it. This is the key. But they're not ready for it. And so the pastor stops in chapter 5, verse 11, if you remember this from last week. And he drops a homiletical bombshell on them. Oh, about this, we have much to say, he writes there in Hebrews 5, verse 11, that is about Christ, about the one who the pastor said in verses 9 and 10, just above this in, in chapter 5, in verses 9 and 10, who became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yes, we have much to say about this, the pastor declares. 
and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And that's the bombshell. They'd regressed spiritually. You need milk, the pastor writes in chapter 5, verse 12. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's what they were now. Unskilled in the word of righteousness. We don't know exactly what had happened. But the pastor's clear that things cannot remain as they are. The spiritual sluggishness and the infancy of his hearers is not a neutral state. They cannot continue to live as spiritual infants. Therefore, he writes, chapter 6, verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Such was the pastor's only strategy for them and their only hope. They had to go on. They had to take in the solid food that's required to be mature, to have, as verse 14 of chapter 5 said, to have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so if you were with us, or in, in the summary at least, we ended last week in chapter 6, verse 3, with the pastor declaring, and this we will do if God permits. Because to not do it, to refuse to go on to maturity, to persist in this state of spiritual regression, to continue as those who are dull of hearing, to fail to appropriate the pastor's teaching about Christ's high priesthood. That would mean, according to our text this morning, that would mean that they would go on toward ultimate loss. without possibility of restoration. Look again, watch the text as I read now again, verses four to six. For it is impossible, the pastor says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. My dear friends, <laughs> Above all else this morning, I want the weightiness of this text to settle in the depths of our hearts, whether you agree with everything in this interpretation I give you or not, because I, I want it to settle, not because I want you to despair. <laughs> the passage coming next in Hebrews confirms what we already suspect is the case here, that the pastor would not issue this warning to his hearers had they already come to this terrible end. His exhortation is not a counsel of despair. It's a wake-up call. My prayer as your pastor has been that our hearts will be awoken by it this morning. 
Which brings me then back to my primary concern. In studying this text, my concern is that you and I will find ourselves unable to hear the pastor's warning amidst what are the endless interpretive and theological challenges that these few verses present. There's no getting around it. This is one of the difficult texts of Scripture, and there are as many different proposed interpretations of it as there are interpretive challenges within it. You sense many of them already, I'm sure. What does it mean to fall away? How can the pastor say that those who have fallen away cannot be restored to repentance? What makes that impossible? Is God unable to forgive someone who has fallen away? How can that be? And for whom is such falling away even a possibility? Can Christians fall away and lose their salvation? Or is the pastor saying that those who fall away were never actually Christians at all? Now, in approaching Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 8, the honest interpreter is aware, or becomes very quickly aware, that his or her own theological positions are what will likely dictate the options they're willing to consider in answer to such questions. And the honest preacher realizes that if ever there were a text the interpretation of which carries with it the potential of significant disagreement among those in his congregation, this is it. Because I know that some of you have theological views on one side or the other that will lead you to render a verdict as to the suitability of my interpretation this morning, such as it is. I know that. I know I cannot possibly interpret this text in a way that will satisfy all questions or all students of this passage. I know all of that. I've thought about all of that this week more than I wanted to think about all of that this week. Which is why I want to begin by saying, and I mean it, that how you respond to this or that aspect of my interpretation is not my primary concern. I, in fact, I've been surprised myself by what's happened this week as I've studied this text. My primary concern is that amidst the potentially differing interpretations and the unresolved theological conundrums that present themselves in a passage like this, my concern is that we may just lose the ability to hear what the pastor is saying. That we might lose sight of the fact that this passage isn't a theological puzzle to be solved. It's a dire warning that we dare not neglect. As one commentator puts it, the pastor wanted his hearers to grasp that persistence in neglect of God's salvation springs from and reinforces unbelief. I think that's a true statement no matter what theological persuasion you're coming from this morning. And thus it can lead to a definitive rejection of God's grace and the irrevocable loss of his blessings. Or, 
if I may put it in words that we've already heard in Hebrews back in chapter 3, verse 12, the point in the end is this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The stakes are extremely high, dear friends. Now I propose to examine this passage by posing and then answering to various levels of completeness four questions. I hope they make sense to you. I'll list them now. Question one, who are those the pastor describes in verses four and five? Who are they? Verse four begins by saying, for it is impossible in the case of those who, and then five things are said about those persons. Who are they? That's the first question. Question two then is, what does the pastor mean when he says in verse six that those who he just described in verses four and five have then fallen away? What does falling away mean? What reality does that describe in one's life? That's the second question. Question three, why is it impossible? That's the very first word in the Greek of verse four. Impossible. Why is it impossible to restore again to repentance? Those who were described in verses four and five and have fallen away. What is it that makes that impossible? And then finally, question four, if we get it there. How can I know whether I'm in real danger of falling away in my life? And for that, in the end, we'll briefly consider verses seven and eight, but it'll be with an eye towards verses nine to 12, which is where we'll come to in the next sermon from Hebrews. And that'll be, that'll be an easier one to swallow than this one. Now, it's going to feel a bit like slogging here sometimes. At some points, it's thick. We have our work cut out for us. I'm just going to do my best. We begin with question one, which is, who are those the pastor describes in verses four and five of this passage? <laughs> this, is the, this is in many ways the key question. I want to answer that in two ways, actually, though in the end, I suggest it's the same thing. But because we're liable to miss this, because I missed this for a long time, I want to begin by making the point this way, that the pastor's talking, I'm, in verses 4 and 5, he's talking about his hearers, isn't he? He's talking about the people in the house church in the first century who are receiving this sermon. This has to be the case, I submit to you, or the passage makes no sense. You have become dull of hearing, the pastor said in chapter 5, verse 11. You ought to be teachers. You need milk. Therefore, let us go on to maturity. And there the pastor includes himself with them in good pastoral style for rhetorical purposes. Right? And this we will do if God permits. Why? Why must they do this? Verse 4. Here's why you, recipients of Hebrews, must do this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. In other words, all the things that have happened to you, dear recipients of this sermon. You see, I think 
the only way the warning works is if the recipients of Hebrews see themselves in the description the pastor gives of those who are at the risk of falling away in verses 4 and 5. Only if that's right, that's significant. Because it seems clear to me, and I've been preaching it as so, that the pastor writes Hebrews to believers. He writes to his hearers as believers all through this sermon. We've already seen this. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, the pastor calls them holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. Again, in 3, verse 12, he calls them brothers and sisters. In chapter 4, verse 2, he contrasts his hearers with the wilderness generation of Israel, doesn't he? saying, for good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened, for we who have believed enter that rest. In chapter 4, verse 14, he says, let us hold fast our confession. The constant assumption of Hebrews is that the recipients were believers. Yes, they had become dull of hearing. Yes, they had regressed, but their regression is lamentable because of what in the past has been true of them, you see. And I've come to the conclusion, personally, that that view of the recipients of this sermon is indeed only reinforced by the five descriptions we find in verses 4 and 5 of our passage. Now, you may know that this is a matter of fierce debate. I mean fierce debate. I have read articles upon article on opposite sides of this question. This is where I spent most of the time I had available to study this week, which wasn't enough, it turned out, in this passage. And I... I can, I can only do what I think I have to do based on my understanding of the text, which is to tell you that I think verses 4 and 5 describe Christians. Not almost Christians. Not partway there Christians. Though there's lots of people do, who do argue for that. And I say that because I don't think that's how the pastor saw them. In fact, had you asked me on Monday or Tuesday of this week, maybe even on Wednesday of this week, what I thought about verses 4 and 5, I probably would have tried to argue for the almost Christian view of who's being described here. Close, but not quite. But at this point, I'm convinced that the five ways the pastor describes the people of verses 4 and 5, which is him talking about his hearers, points to them being Christians. So let's look at these quickly. Number one is in verse four, for it is impossible, the pastor says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, they were once enlightened. I think that's a reference to conversion. I think it has to be that. Ephesians 1 verse 18 speaks of spiritual enlightenment. In the second century, the term here for enlightenment, it comes to be used for baptism, evidencing something of the significance that this term had in the period when Hebrews was written. But the real clincher is Hebrews 10, verse 32. 
because there in the pastor in 1032 uses the same word. And he says in Hebrews 10 verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And in that context of Hebrews 10, the word naturally refers to the conversion of the readers because they suffered after turning to God in faith and repentance is the whole point. And so I don't see in either chapter 6 verse 4 or in chapter 10 verse 32 that the pastor is hinting here in any way that they were almost enlightened. Though there are some who suggest that. I think in fact that the word once that's used in chapter 6 verse 4 seems to reinforce the conclusion I'm drawing. It suggests it was a decisive event. They have once been enlightened. In other words, I think at their conversion they were illuminated. That's what the pastor's saying. They received the knowledge of God. So then I'm on to number two. Continuing in verse four, the pastor describes them as those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, the exact reference for gift, what that means, that's hard to define here. Hard to pin down. But I think the sense in calling it the heavenly gift means that this is a gift that has come down from heaven and gives God's people Entrance to heaven, if you will, to the divine presence. The gift is the description as heaven. It's called heavenly, both because that's its source and that's its goal. I think the gift in the context of Hebrews is most likely the entire new life of the hearers. The great salvation, the pastor mentions in chapter 2, verse 3, which means it's their whole present experience of salvation, which, yes, will culminate in that end-time kingdom that cannot be shaken when we get finally to Hebrews 12. But I don't mean by framing it that way that I'm saying the gift is partial. The metaphor of tasting does not work in the Greek first century in the way that you and I might use it today to mean that we just, we just get a little taste of something. But we don't really experience the whole reality of it. Right? No. N not normally in the literature of that time. Not universal, but not normally in the literature of that time. In the literature, it means, the word taste means to experience fully. It's another way of describing eating. Elsewhere in Hebrews, the word means exactly that. The pastor refers to Jesus tasting death in chapter 2, verse 9. That cannot mean Jesus just dabbled with death a bit, but didn't really experience it. He died. He experienced fully all the horrors of death. In the same way when the pastor says his hearers tasted the heavenly gift, I think the most natural way to understand that is that they actually experienced this gift that comes from above. Continuing then in verse 4, you come to the third thing the pastor says that he's talking here about those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. He says, you could translate it, have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. But it's fine to keep the word shared. But the nuance of that term isn't that they just, just shared a little bit. Maybe they were just companions for a while or something. And therefore they fell short of the full saving experience with the Spirit. I can't say that's it, because the word that's used for sharing in there denotes in other contexts full participation. 
And here again, the use of that word within Hebrews itself, it makes the case for me, I believe. In chapter 3, verse 1 of Hebrews, believing men and women are said to share in a heavenly calling. They fully participate in that heavenly calling. In chapter 3, verse 14, they, the believers, are truly sharers of Christ. If they persevere to the end, I mean, there again, the sense is fully participating in as they persevere to the end. Chapter 12, verse 8, the pastor tells us those who are truly sons share in discipline. You fully experience the discipline. The verb that's related to this noun, meaning to share or to partake, is also used in chapter 2, verse 14, to say that Jesus shared flesh and blood with human beings. It means he fully experienced it. In every case, the sense is that to share it is to fully experience it which is hugely significant here because we're talking about sharing the Holy Spirit. And you know your New Testament's the sign that someone is a Christian is the reception of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we hit that one hard in Galatians, didn't we? If you remember this, having begun by the Spirit, Paul says, <laughs> Galatians 3. Or Acts 15, Cornelius and his friends received salvation, Peter argues. Why? Because they were given the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 9, Paul essentially says, those who don't have the Spirit of God don't belong to God. Those who have the Spirit are members of the people of God. I mean, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the clearest indication in the New Testament that one is a Christian. To say they're sharers of the Holy Spirit, I think, is to say that they were Christians. Now then, numbers 4 and 5, the fourth and fifth thing that the author says, we'll come together here quickly in verse 5. We'll do them together. They are those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and have tasted the powers of the age to come. I don't have to repeat my comments about tasting. The same thing applies. They fully experience these things. First, they fully experience the goodness of the Word of God. Or you could better translate it, perhaps, God's good word. In other words, what's God's good word about? It's the gospel. They fully ingested God's word by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they're talking about. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. In other places in Hebrews, you get the clear sense that when they tasted that word, it wasn't superficial. They embraced it. They were even willing to suffer as a result, as we'll see later in chapter 10. Now, the second thing that's there in verse 5, or the fifth thing in our list, is that they tasted the powers of the age to come. They truly experienced them. We're talking here the age to come. We're talking new creation power, right? In Jesus' death and resurrection, as he now sits ascended in his new creation body, the new age has penetrated this age. It's New Testament eschatology 101. The, the, the end has invaded time before the end of time. Right? They're experiencing realities that speak of a coming age. However you want to talk about what the powers are that may be referred to here, the word for powers is to me suggesting a real, a dynamic experience, not something that was ineffectual. This is strong language about the age to come. They've experienced the reality of the coming age of salvation is the point. And a lot more could be said. You get my drift. I just don't see 
how the language of verses 4 and 5 can mean anything but that the pastor is describing Christians. One commentator says, the cumulative effect is to emphasize the comprehensive nature of the spiritual benefits received and thus the greater obligation to honor God by perseverance in faithful obedience. God's salvation and presence are the unquestionable reality of their lives. Only then we rush really urgently on to question two, don't we? Because there's, there's another further description that's added. It's given then concerning those whose case the pastor is considering here. Only now, if the way I've been interpreting this is, is correct, you begin to feel something of the abrupt and the shocking force of this, I hope, because if I'm right, and again, there are plenty of people who don't think I'm right. But if the way I've been talking about this is right, and the pastor's so far been describing his hearers of this sermon in verses 4 and 5, then now in verse 6, there's a shift. And now is why we see that the pastor started in verse 4 to use the third person pronoun, right? In the case of those who, instead of using you to refer to his hearers or we to include them along with himself in the description, it's because in the case of those who have been enlightened and have tasted and have shared of all these things, like you? The pastor puts forward one more descriptor. He says, they then have fallen away. And you see, we just, we don't feel that. That's meant to stun his hearers. I mean, stop them dead in their tracks. Because what does the pastor mean by fall away here? Now, I can't put forward for you all the pieces that are behind this to make my point thoroughly. I'm already running out of time. But I think it's clear that the pastor means, in this context, apostasy. I think he means abandoning the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it means the same as what he meant in Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, the word for fall away is a different word there, and we'd have to talk about the, the, the meaning of the, the two words. I won't do that right now. But in the context of where we are in chapter 6, I think the clearest way to see what's entailed here is to look at the next phrase in verse 6. It is impossible pastor says, beginning of verse 4, of those who he's described in 4 and 5, having fallen away, what's impossible? Verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. And I just think that's a big clue. Right? Because in other words, what's happening? When you try to restore someone who has fallen away in the sense that the pastor means here, what happens? You find such a person doesn't repent. Which I think is the key. There's no repentance now. I agree with how one scholar puts it. This falling away is not a matter of faults and errors, but of making a deliberate choice not to participate in the gift once given, 
Look at Hebrews take completely for granted that all believers continually sin and must therefore approach the throne of grace, right? Falling away is not about committing sins as you live the life of faith. Being skilled in the word of righteousness, which is what they need to be if they're mature, does not mean that they never sin again. It does mean that there is righteous fruit in their lives. We'll talk about that in a bit. But part of that righteousness actually involves, in their sin, going to the throne of grace. It means that when you do sin, you repent. You recognize you need God's grace all through your life. That's why the pastor urges his hearers to approach the throne of grace through Jesus Christ, their great high priest. They have to do that. And that's what the one who's fallen away no longer does, you see. The sin that's in view, I think, is a comprehensive rebellion against turning from the gospel. It's the rejection of God's forgiveness in Christ once they were repentant. Did you catch that? He says it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. That means once they were repentant. I don't see what else it can suggest. But now they have completely broken with the life that's described in verses 4 and 5. As one commentator summarizes it, the pastor is not referring to sin in general, but to a repudiation of Christ and surrender of one's confession that sunders all connection with him. And if you sit here and think, well, that's crazy, I could never get to that point. You're not hearing the pastor. But remember, pastor isn't saying his hearers have already fallen away. He's not. This is the warning. And the warning is that apostasy is where their sluggishness and their dullness of hearing could take them if they don't go on to maturity. Now, time's short. Question three is, why is it impossible to restore again to repentance? Those who were so described in verses four and five have now fallen away in this case that the pastor presents to warn them. My answer to that comes from the rest of verse six. Let's back up and read it again. It's impossible in the case of those who've fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, first of all, let me make a comment here that I believe that the one or the ones for whom it is impossible here are those who are attempting to bring it about those who are attempting pastoral care, those, I think the context of this is within the church, as so much of what Hebrews is saying is. I don't think this means that God would not and could not forgive them. I don't think that. Rather, the point is that the hearers, if they repudiate Christ, will have no desire to return to him, you see. That's the danger. Only let me explain for you how before this week, I had always read that last part of verse 6, I believe, incorrectly. 
for years, I've tried to make sense of this to mean that the reason why someone who falls away in the way that the pastor is describing here cannot be restored to repentance is because since if they were to repent, it would be like crucifying the Son of God once again. But that's not what the verse says. It doesn't say that if such a person were to repent, then they would be crucifying once again the Son of God. It doesn't say that. It says the reason it's impossible to restore such a person to repentance is because they are now crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You see the difference? This is what apostates do. What people who have fallen away do, they crucify once again the Son of God and hold him up to contempt. Why? Not because Jesus is actually somehow being crucified again. It means, I think, something like this. You fall away in the manner that's described here in this text. What you're saying is, I don't need Jesus. I reject Jesus. Jesus did not die for my sins. To abandon God's Son is to say that his death did not save, that it was for nothing, or to put it another way, apostasy concedes that Jesus was rightly crucified. The penalty was warranted, so instead of being blessed by accepting the forgiveness found in the crucified Christ, the ones who've fallen away here identify with those who use the cross as an ultimate expression of rejection. Right? Apostates stand with those before the cross and cast insults. And by virtue of their non-repentance, they keep on doing it. These are present tense verbs in the Greek. Only they do so to their own harm, the pastor ominously says, because their denial of the sacrifice of the great high priest means they will not access the only means of grace and mercy accessible, available to them. Of course it's impossible to restore such persons to repentance. True apostates don't seek repentance. They've definitively turned from God's final, once-for-all provision in Christ. They've unconcerned in their persistence in disobedience. It doesn't phase them. Their restoration is therefore impossible. Now there's lots of ways that Hebrews 10 verses 26 to 39 is the parallel text to what we've been reading and studying this morning and we're not going to turn there and go through it but I do just want to draw out for you one thing we'll eventually get there and preach it in chapter 10 verse 26 just listen to this because I suggest to you that this is what our Hebrews 6 passage is on about. It's just that the author spells it out more precisely later in Hebrews 10 verse 26. Hear these words. For if we, there he includes his readers, his hearers with him. For if we go on sinning deliberately. That's a critical word. After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I.e., it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. But, Hebrews 10.26, a fearful expectation of judgment. 
No, I think you cannot interpret Hebrews 6 otherwise than what that verse means. They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, the pastor says. And I know at this point I'm not going to get to everything, but I'm on to question four here briefly at the end. How can I know whether I'm in danger of falling away in my life? Now, I think the answer to that is, is resident in verses 7 and 8, but that it, it becomes confirmed by how the pastor will move forward into verses 9 to 12, which is where we're going to be next time we're in Hebrews. Verse 7 begins with 4, which I think is in reference to the whole of verses 4 to 6. Verses 4 to 6 is one big sentence in, in both, well, the ESV has it that way too, in the Greek, in the English. One sentence. Here comes the explanation for that whole sentence. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. You see, the land is us, you and me. And the rain that often falls on it is all the stuff in verses 4 and 5. I submit to you, you've been enlightened. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come. How right it is for God to expect faithful obedience in response to this grace. Those who respond to God's grace with faithfulness will receive his ultimate blessing. It's the new covenant hope. Then comes verse 8. But if it, and it is the land, it is the same land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. Don't miss that point. <laughs> but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, or better, I think, about to be cursed. And its end is to be burned. Here's the question we ought to ask ourselves, dear friends. What is it that dominates our lives? Thorns and thistles, or good and useful fruit? The answer reveals much about the state of our hearts, does it not? Does it not? And whether we are in danger in our spiritual regression of continuing on to apostasy. Paul proclaimed in Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. James 2 verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Of course not. Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12, where the pastor moves next. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. What a glorious yet that is. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name in 
serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Which is the end of my sermon. Except that when I was awoken early this morning, there were other reflections that came to me. And though the time is gone and you have to just be gracious and merciful with me, I do feel compelled in a text such as this and after a sermon such as this to add for you two brief footnotes, if you will. I've never done this in my 10 years of preaching. Whatever, 12 years, I don't know how long. Two footnotes. Maybe they should have been integrated earlier. We are where we are. Footnote one. I think it's really, really important here to say, for me to say, that this passage gives no authority, no rational basis for making a judgment about others having fallen away. That is simply something we cannot know. Not ultimately. <laughs> Viewed from the outside, it might be hard to imagine a stronger candidate for the sin of apostasy than Peter's thrice repeated and very emphatic denial following an extended and intimate experience with the Lord. Would you and I have been so able to distinguish that from Judas? Remember David? I mean, my word. How long did we spend in Samuel? Left to our own, would we have known the grievousness of Saul's fall? When compared to David's sin? Yet in both cases, in Peter and in David, the final word was the word of forgiveness. This is not to diminish the obvious warning of this passage. The pastor calls no one out in this passage by name. I think that's significant. But he walks the entire church up to the edge of the abyss. Not so that you then just wring your hands and worry that you might be in that, be falling into that abyss, but for precisely the opposite reason. Because the pastor knows that the only appropriate application of all of this is to head in the opposite direction and to approach the throne of grace. That's my footnote one. Now, my footnote two. The... The committed Calvinist in the room. So you have to know what I mean when I say that. But The committed Calvinist in the room will rightly wonder whether I even bothered to consider the many texts in Scripture that speak to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Right? I mean, you, maybe you carry your, your tulip cards in your pocket. And out comes the P. Perseverance of the saints. 
I assure you, I am familiar with those texts and I find them to offer great comfort in my life. Yet, at this point, I tell you that my wrestling with the Greek text of verses 4 and 5 just does not permit me to see in it anything less than a description of a Christian. I can't do it. Is it possible to say, and I have read sermons by Calvinistic Reformed preachers who are excellent expositors and students of the word, and they say this. Is it possible to say that those who are so described in verses 4 and 5, if they fall away, were actually all along mightily deceived? That truth be told, they were never actually Christians at all. That is precisely what is taught from this text. I do not know for certain how to answer such questions. I, I frankly find it hard to, to figure out how anyone thinks they can answer such questions like that so confidently. My concern is not to dispute the finer points of Calvinism, but to, to say that I worry that we risk running counter to the purpose of the pastor if we find ourselves having to bend his language a little too far in order to accommodate the requirements of our theology. Someone wisely once said to me, if we can't say what, the author in, what, what an author in the New Testament says, we're missing something. That's how I feel in these verses from Hebrews chapter 6. The thing which I can say and do say to you with certainty is what I said at the beginning. The pastor would have us take the sober warning of these troubling verses deeply to heart. No matter your persuasion theologically. And having done so, he would have us embrace our high priest by whose blood we have confidence to enter the holy places and to draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith, as he will say, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.